You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. So our scripture for today is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Can I just invite everyone to take a moment to flip your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks, Ming-Yang. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Welcome to RHC. It's good to have you today. All right. In 1940, uh, four teenagers were exploring the Lascaux Caves in France, a system of caves that had not been deeply explored, uh, very many intricate um, uh, tunnels and caves, and they were venturing deeper and deeper, and suddenly, one of them saw something curious, a shaft of light that he thought shouldn't have been there. And as he, his eye followed it and he explored more carefully, he discovered that this shaft of light illuminated the, what emerged as the most stunning discovery of prehistoric paintings that began to give crucial insight uh, into early human history and early human art. And there's a picture of one of those behind me, never discovered before, one of the earliest discoveries ever of this kind of art. Friends, a crack of light, a a slight crack of light that opened them and all of us to another world that enabled us to better understand our own. In the passage today, Paul says that we all as the church, as Christians, can shine as lights in the world. Friends, you and I and the way that we live can be a shaft of light that cause others to stop and say, hold on, what's that? And discover an entirely new world in God. And I want to encourage us as a church because I believe that there are huge evangelistic opportunities coming to us in the decade ahead. Recently, I listened to a series by a British journalist called The Surprising Rebirth of Faith, in which he speaks about how, in which he tracks the rise and to some degree the fall of the movement of the new atheists that emerged in the mid-2000s, but has really faltered in many ways. Increasingly, there are many of those strident atheists from 20 years ago who are beginning to rethink faith due to things like the origin of the universe, uh, the lack of meaning that comes through a life that abandons God, and also the basis for morality in the world. And friends, I want to say I believe that there are huge opportunities a huge evangelistic opportunities coming to the church and Christians over the next decades. And we could see many, many people coming to know Jesus. The question is, how are we to shine like lights in the world? 
And here in this passage, Paul is going to show us that we do this by joyfully following Jesus in life. Now, our passage is going to show us that there's some hindrances to this, but it's also going to show us what we can do to help us live this way and what God does too. So the main idea of this morning is that the church shines God's light as we joyfully work out our salvation before a watching world. And our sermon today is fairly straightforward. We have three main points we're going to look at. Firstly, the church's witness. Secondly, the church's work. And finally, the worker underneath our witness and work. So let's dive in. Our passage is from verse 12 to 18, but I want us to look at verse 14 to kind of see the central argument or idea that Paul has here. So in verse 14, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or questioning so that... You may be a blameless, you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So what he's saying here is we're to go about our lives, we'll see what this means in a moment, without grumbling or questioning. When we do that by holding fast to the word of life, this enables us to live contrary to the world. We will shine like lights. Uh, in contrast to a twisted and crooked generation, and we end up shining the light of the gospel. So let's try and understand what exactly Paul is saying here. Firstly, I think we should ask ourselves in verse 14, what does Paul mean by all things? If we're to do all things without grumbling or questioning, and this is going to help to shine the light of the gospel, what exactly does he mean by all things? And I think, as we'll see, that all things here refers to following Jesus in the midst of a difficult and broken world. If you uh, have your Bibles, I hope you have them open or you can scroll on your phones. Look back in chapter 1 to verse 29, where Paul says that there's opposition coming to the church and persecution. And then he says, It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for him. But Paul's whole attitude with following Jesus has been joy in the midst of his persecution in prison. And Paul has said that, in fact, verse 27, when you're not frightened in any way by your opponents, it's a sign to them that they're going to be judged, but that you are going to be delivered one day. Or look at chapter 2, verse uh, 2 to 4. Paul has spoken there about how we're to live and follow Jesus. He said we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, In humility, we're to count others more significant than ourselves. In other words, what Paul says here when he finally gets in chapter 2, verse 14, to say, do all things without grumbling or complaining, Paul is talking about all of the Christian life that God grants to us to live, that God commands us to live. And Paul is saying this because some of the things God calls us to do in this world seem to be difficult. Uh, He said, count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, serve one another. Don't live for your own interests, but lay down your life for one another. Be willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus with a sense of joy. And Paul's saying all of these things should be done without grumbling and complaining. We could uh, translate this into our context to say serving a church, hosting CG, putting up with that really difficult CG member uh, who you sometimes want to avoid um, and, not have talk, and, and, and not talk to, or maybe some of the other things that the Bible tells us. Maybe You've recently come to faith and you think, why is the Bible's sexual ethic like so narrow and restricted? Like, why is sex only uh, inside the gift and institution of marriage? Like, that seems rather burdensome. 
Or do I, do I really have to be generous toward the church and toward other people? So often, God's commands can feel somewhat burdensome. Uh, and Paul is saying, yeah, everything God calls us to do, do this all without grumbling and complaining. So let's think about this. What exactly does Paul mean when he says, do this without grumbling and complaining? The, the language here, look in verse 14, do all these things without grumbling or questioning. Now, I don't know what version you're reading, even the ESV, whether it's the English version or the American version or the old version or the new version keeps translating this word a little bit differently. Some versions say questioning or complaining or arguing, but the word for questioning here is actually without like a kind of argumentative thought in your own mind. So what Paul's getting at here is not the fact that you're arguing with other people about God's commands, but that internally... When you see the life God's calling you to live, there's an internal dialogue that says, like, why do I have to do this? That sense of like, is this really what God's calling me to do? There's an inner attitude here that says, oh, I'm such a poor thing, you know, like I can't believe God is really going to make me do this. Now, for those of you who uh, visited the old version of the membership class that Ming Yang was talking about earlier... Um, all the elders would typically give our testimonies there. And part of what I would describe in my testimony of coming to faith was I was brought up in a Christian family, but I knew I wasn't converted as a 10, 11, 12-year-old because there were all these things that my classmates were doing at school that I thought would be very fun to do and I wanted to do, like cheating in tests, swearing, looking at like bad pictures, but I knew I wasn't allowed to do those things because my dad told me, we're Christians, you can't do those things. And my attitude was definitely one of grumbling and complaining. I'm like, what is so, like, life is so unfair. I'm, just because I'm a Christian, I can't do all these things that would really make me so happy. And that was one of the signs God hadn't yet made my heart alive to him to really know him and love him. But it's not just when we're in that state that we feel this way. It's quite possible we misunderstand God's ways. Even as Christians, we're all growing in these things. And we look at some of God's commands and we really think this is very burdensome. And what this means for some of us is that we end up living our Christian lives feeling like such a poor thing. I just, it's like life sucks. God tells me to live this way, but I mean, you can't beat God, right? And he's like dangling eternity over your head. So no point resisting. And we live the Christian life with a sense of grumbling and questioning in our hearts. As a pastor in Singapore, I sometimes need to process filial piety with people who feel that sense of duty that they have to respond and treat their parents in a certain way, but there's not a great sense of joy and delight in doing so. And it feels like an obligation or a duty that has to happen. Now, to be fair, that's not everyone's story. And for everyone, there's often a sense of joy and delight in some aspects of serving parents, but sometimes there's a sense of deep obligation. And Paul is saying here, there's a sense, friends, in which we all can serve God or suffer for the sake of Jesus or obey his commands with that kind of an attitude. And when that happens, we are not going to be shining a light for Jesus in the world. Now, as we'll see in a moment, there are quite a few references in this passage that bring us back to the Old Testament. And grumbling and complaining is certainly one of them. Remember where God delivered his people, rescued them out of Egypt, saved them by the blood of the lamb, parted the Red Sea. They'd been praying and 
begging God to deliver them from Pharaoh who had enslaved them. And they pled and they, and they cried out to God. And God goes and rescues them and he brings them out of Egypt, one miracle after another. And they find themselves in the wilderness. And what do they begin to do? Grumble and complain. God, why did you bring us out into the desert? Did you bring us out here to kill us? Oh, we're eating this manna that comes from heaven every day. I mean, you're miraculously feeding us. So boring. Manna, manna, manna. God sends quail. Oh, God, all we get to eat is quail and manna day after day. Eventually, they say, we wish we could go back to Egypt. It was far better there. Friends, this tendency really exists in many of our hearts. And this is exactly the opposite of the tone of the letter that Paul has been referring to again and again. Think about chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul will get there in a couple of weeks' time. Paul says, I consider everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul says, I'll gladly give up everything I had in my old life just to, for the joy of knowing Jesus. And Paul here is in jail. He's suffering for, for the gospel. But this is the, his letter of joy where he's rejoicing again and again. Well, think even back to chapter 1 where Paul says, when, we, when we're not afraid of our opponents, when we are persecuted, but we're not afraid, this is a sign to them of their destruction, but of our salvation. The way we live, friends, is a witness that shines like a light that shows them the reality of God in the world. So what we're seeing here is the joy with which we follow Jesus' commands, whether we're at school, at after-dinner drinks, how we engage with our kids at home, and how we live counterculturally is the way that we shine. This means for us as a church, friends, we as a church, as you know, are committed to seeing Asia transformed by the gospel, cities of Asia renewed. And that's going to happen not only by us sending our church plants, which you'll hear at our members' meeting, we intend to do more of, but also how every one of us joyfully obey Jesus day to day when we arrive at work. Every one of us, friends, can shine the light of the gospel this way. Now, I want us to notice something. Paul says in this passage that we shine like a light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And there's something fascinating about this here. Because in verse 15, Paul is contrasting how the church shines as a light to a crooked and twisted generation. In other words, the crooked and twisted generation is the world, those outside of the church. But what's fascinating this crooked and twisted generation is a quote. Paul is actually lifting it from Deuteronomy 32. And what's fascinating is in Deuteronomy 32, a crooked and twisted generation are God's people who grumbled in the wilderness. So Paul is literally quoting an idea or a criticism of God's people in the Old Testament. And now he's saying, church, you shine like a light compared to a twisted and crooked generation in the world. What is he saying? He's saying something has happened to these people. Something happens to Christians that is different to the Old Testament. Something transforms us and changes us and makes us new so that we can shine like lights. So the question is, what does God do? Or what, and, and how do we respond to this that enables us to shine like lights? So our first point was the church's witness. As we embrace, we follow Jesus with suffering or countercultural ways with a sense of joy, now we're going to see the church's work. So let's think about this. If I tell you, we're going to have a sermon point now about the church's work. What do you think the church's work is? What is the primary work of a Christian? 
Some of you are thinking kidsmen, arriving at church on time. What do you think of? In verse 12, Paul tells us, work out your, work out our, salvation with fear and trembling. Now, friends, I want us to be very clear this morning. Paul is not saying here, work for your salvation. Let's make sure that we're very clear about this. You never see this idea in the Bible anywhere that we're to work to achieve or accomplish or earn our salvation. In the Bible, if you're new or visiting, the work of salvation, the work to deliver us and rescue us, is not done by us. It's done by Jesus, who died for our sins and then rose again from the dead. The Bible tells us we can die for our sins. In fact, that's why death is in the world, and every person, if we're outside of Jesus, will die for our sins one day. We just won't be able to rise again, because death will own us and claim us forever. But Jesus came and took on flesh. He went to the cross to die in our place. He didn't have his own sins. He died for our sins. And then he conquered death and rose again. Jesus accomplished our salvation. He defeated death for us. And this is announced to us, the Bible says, as good news. The good news that Jesus Christ died and rose again. Let's put up our, uh, our next slide. We spoke about this a year ago. If you're new to RHC, I'd encourage you to go back to March and think about our gospel, or listen to our gospel emphasis series. This was the first sermon where we're distinguishing the good news of what Jesus did for us right in the middle. God saved sinners through his death and resurrection. And this is different from the riches or the benefits that we have as a result of Jesus' death and then different to our response. The good news, Jesus died for our sins and rose again. So Jesus accomplishes our salvation. And in John chapter six, the disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, uh, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the work that God requires? That's a pretty good question. And Jesus gives a, a beautiful and surprising answer. Jesus says the work that you must do, the work of God is this. And everyone's waiting. And Jesus doesn't say kidsmen. Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. Jesus does the work. Jesus is going to die and rise. We need to put our faith and to trust in him. And I think this is alluded to in our passage. Look at verse 17. Paul says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, we'll get to that in chapter four because he brings up this idea of drink offering again. We won't explain that in too much detail now. But he says, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. And very simply, the Philippian sacrificial offering is their generosity in chapter four, their partnership in the gospel, chapter one. But Paul this explains all of this as being from their faith. Everything they do has sprung out of or come out of their faith. So I wanted to clarify here, in the New Testament, in Christianity, Jesus works for our salvation and accomplishes it. But Paul does say something here. Paul says we are to work out our salvation, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And what Paul means by this, friends, is how we respond to the good news of Jesus is we take his news and we figure it out. We wrestle with it. We apply it to our lives. We think, if Jesus really did die for my sins, what does that mean about my sin? What does that mean for how I should live? What does that mean for my identity? 
What does it mean for how I live amongst God's people? What does it mean for how I go to work? What does it mean for how much money I save or where I put my hopes or what I do career-wise? We, we take his salvation and we work it out. We wrestle with it and try and flesh it out. To put it another way, we are asking ourselves, how do we live in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection? So uh, back to our image. If we have the good news in the middle that God saves sinners through Christ's death and resurrection, this has implications for us. It means there are riches we have. So we begin to think about ourselves. And we think, if Jesus really died for me and rose again, that must mean I'm really loved by God. That must mean I really have nothing to prove. This must mean I don't actually need to fear death. If Jesus loves me this way, if, if Jesus died and, and rose again, and Paul says, if God did not spare his son, how much more will he not graciously give us all things? In fact, my fear of being without in this world is irrational. God is for me. And then we begin to, th I mean, I'm just giving a, a couple of examples. Then we begin to think, okay, what's my response to this? Well, if Jesus died for my sins, that means sin is like my greatest enemy. It begins to change how I view sin. I begin to hate it. I begin to want to put it to death, to not give in to it or yield to it. If Jesus loved me this way, we love him because he first loved us. I think, how should I respond? My heart begins to be moved and melted. I begin to love God. If Jesus has forgiven me, as Colossians 3 says, we forgive one another as Christ forgave us. Friends, just a few examples here, but this is what Paul means, work out your salvation. If you're like dirt poor, you, you, can, you, you can only afford like one meal a day, siphon, it's like just one meat, one veg, that's one, one time a day, that's all you can have. And then suddenly, you, you get told you've just won $10 million dollars. $10 million. Friends, suddenly, it's like there are riches that you have now. And you can respond differently. You can now have maybe two meat, one veg, right? <laughs> you, you can be generous. You can begin to actually think about other, it's like serve and love in an extravagant way. Why? Something's happened. It changes you. They're, they're, they're riches that you have now and now you can respond. Friends, Paul is saying here, Remember, in the, in the passage we heard last Sunday, he's explained Jesus' gospel. We'll get there in a moment. But he's saying, work this out. Think about this. Flesh this out. And we're to do this with fear and trembling. In other words, don't play play. I mean, this is serious. Jesus died for your sins. Let's, let's not joke around here. If, if the Son of God really took on flesh, suffered for your sins, then we really need to think about this. What does this mean? We need to work this out. There's a whole new life waiting for us. Now, Let's think about this. What in this passage, I mean, I'm talking fairly generally here. What in this passage are we specifically being asked to urge to work out? We've been told not to grumble and complain in all things. So let's apply Jesus' salvation, let's work out our salvation, to what Paul's asking us here, grumbling and questioning or having this kind of attitude toward God. Okay, let's do that. So why are we inclined to, you know, think we're such a poor thing, grumble and complain about, about God? Friends, I think that one of the reasons are we, we are just curved inward toward ourselves. We, we tend to be self-centered. 
we tend to be entitled. We tend to live thinking only of the here and now, not of eternity. We don't live thinking about the big picture, who God is, what he's doing in the world. As a result, we tend to live trying to maximize our short-term joys, just get as much short-term pleasure as we can. We tend to live selfishly with earthly pleasures in mind. And this is why many of us grumble and complain about God's commands. This is why we think they're burdensome. God, you're ruining my fun. And as a result, some of us end up thinking we're hard done by, we're victims. In other words, we, we minimize our sin, maximize our victim status, and we see everything as conspiring against us. We feel God even himself doesn't really care about us. God's not looking out for us. So the irony is that our lack of trust in God, our lack of faith in him, is our real problem. And yet we make it worse by grumbling against even him. So, how does salvation apply to this? How do we work out our salvation in a way that's going to deal with this root? Well, let's think what Paul just said. I mean, look at verse, in verse 12. He said, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, work out your salvation. He's connected this to the previous section. So let's have a look at uh, what came up in our previous section and how salvation was spoken about. This is how he describes Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus was in the form of God. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We don't have verse 9, but 9 to 11 talks about how he then ascended. God uh, exalted him. Therefore, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So, let's again think. How does the work of Jesus, the, our salvation, how do we work this out if our tendency is to grumble and complain? Let's think about two different ways. Firstly, at the cross. Friends, Jesus did not consider his short-term interests. But Jesus thought of you. Have the same mind that is in Christ. Though he had equality with God, he didn't count his interests as something to be grasped or to be held onto. But he humbled himself. He took on flesh for you and for me. He came to understand us. He came to carry our sins. He came to love you. He came to serve you. Friends, this passage is telling you Friends, there's nobody here who is a victim of God's cruelty or God's lack of concern. This passage is saying, friends, no one here is a victim because God doesn't care for you. Rather, God himself, Jesus, became the victim of your and my sin. It was our sin that nailed him there. And he did this in love to redeem us because of his love for us. Friends, what does this mean? Can we think, you know, God doesn't care about us, doesn't know us, is not interested in us, has forgotten us? No, friends, Paul is saying work out your salvation. As it applies to this tendency to, to grumble and, and complain and think that God's forgotten you. No, that doesn't make sense. And moreover, in verse 9 to 11, Paul's going to bring out Jesus' exaltation. Paul is showing here that, that God shows 
that following God's countercultural ways, Jesus' humility and his death, is always vindicated. Jesus humbled himself. He took on flesh. And therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. Friends, in the gospel, that which dies for Jesus' sake, that which, go, that, that, that which lays its life down, always finds new life, is rewarded by God, is vindicated. A grain of wheat falls to the ground and it seems to die, but it's going to bear much fruit. The last shall be first. Jesus emptied himself, but was highly exalted, is given the name above every name. And friends, likewise, though we suffer with him now, though we sacrifice some things here in this world that our colleagues or our friends think we're crazy to do, friends, there is eternal joy waiting for us. It will be vindicated. There will be an exaltation. And we will be with Jesus forever and ever. And Paul, who's in prison, feels this. Paul sees this. Paul has a sense of joy in his heart. Which is why, because he's worked out his salvation in this way, he can rejoice in prison. He can praise God. Because he's not just living to maximize every earthly pleasure now. For him, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Friends, If this news that God saves sinners through Jesus' death and resurrection is true, friends, this means we can follow him, and even when it makes little sense, and we can do it without grumbling or questioning in our hearts, is God for me? Does he love me? But we can do it with joy because there is glory and exaltation waiting for us. And this means, friends, for there's no one here, nothing that you do for Jesus will ever be wasted. This glory and vindication is coming and there's no need to grumble. And this means, friends, we can live following Jesus with gladness and joy and shine a real light for him. So, to work out your salvation, friends, here is to take the good news of Jesus and to believe it. To live like it's actually true. To begin to live in the riches. To realize what it it says. And this is what biblical faith is. This is what it means. To believe... Jesus says, what must, you know, they say to Jesus, what must I do to do the work God requires? Believe in the one that he sent. Now, friends, I know that uh, there are, sometimes we can get confused about what biblical faith is. I went to buy a new shirt uh, last weekend, and when I was going down the elevator at Uniqlo, I couldn't help but listen to someone who was about three steps in front of me who was talking quite loudly, explaining to a group of friends around this person about her verse for the year. And she said, my verse for the year is Hebrews 11 verse 1. Faith is the certainty of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I was like, yeah, this is pretty good. Uh, And it emerged that her friends obviously weren't believers, and she was trying to explain to them what it meant. I was like, good on you. Go for it. She says, this means... If I really want something, if I really want something and I believe it and I'm convinced it'll come to pass, it will happen. I just must believe it enough. I was like, oh, oh, oh no. Friends, so close, but so far. That's not what the Bible means by faith. Faith is where we take what God has said, what God has promised to us, what God has done, to, done for us, and, we, and we, we live as though that's true. We stand on his promises. And friends, 
the good news of the Bible is better than anything you could long for yourself or like visualize or try and believe it will really come to pass. It's better than a condo or a new car or like a, a great boyfriend or something. Friends, what God has done for us, Jesus has died for our sins. He's bringing us to glory. He's our father. He's lavished his love upon us. And to work out your salvation is to live as though this is true, to, to believe it, to work out your salvation day by day. Friends, this is the work that we do. And this is the logic of Christianity, friends. This is what we do when we wake up on a Monday morning. This is what we do when we're at lunch with our colleagues and people are talking about their bonuses or their retirement plans or how much they have. And we find ourselves tempted to grumble or to put our hope in those things. We do the work of believing. We go back, no, Jesus. You've provided for my deepest need, my sins. You promised to never leave me or forsake me. You're bringing me to glory. I don't live by maximizing every earthly pleasure and my comfort in my bank account, but in my eternal riches that I have in Christ because he died for me and rose again. Now we apply this when we're struggling to forgive our spouse or a friend who's treated us badly. Jesus, because you've forgiven me, I'm forgiven by you. And now I want to respond. I want to work out my salvation with, 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 with graciousness and tenderness. Friends, this is how the faith works. Now, this is, this is pretty good news. Jesus does the work. We just have to work it out. Jesus works for our salvation. But in our passage, what's amazing is that's not even the end of it. Because not only do we see our witness, and not only do we see our work, but we see finally the worker, another worker, willing, willing our work and witness. Paul has said that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I want us to see here, friends, there is real help for you and I here. Because the sentence does not end just work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's not, there's not a full stop there. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Friends, this is almost too good to be true. What we're saying here is Jesus is the one who accomplishes our salvation. He works for it. We have to work it out. But even as we work it out, God is pleased and happy to try and help us work it out. He's working in us to try and help us work it out. I mean, friends, God here is like doing everything from start to finish. God is all over this passage. The word work here, God is working in us, is the word energy. This means God's putting his power in us to help us do what he wants us to do. When I, was, uh, when I got my first car in South Africa when I was 18, as you do, it was a very old car, and uh, the battery would often die, and then you'd have to push start your car. And it's like got an engine, it's got petrol, but the battery's flat. Oh, it's like you now you're pushing your car, and we, our driver was like, you know, downward slope, so you could like push it up, and you, it rolls down, and if it doesn't kick, kick start by the time you get to the bottom, you're like, oh, you've got to push it all the way back up again. Here, friends, like God is that, that battery, that energy that comes to start and put power in us to enable us to do this work. God is rooting for us. And what's amazing, it says he's working in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. In other words, you know, God's not just sitting in the heavens being like, oh my gosh, can you people at RHC just get yourself together? No, God's like, RHC, Jesus died for you and 
I'm like, like I'm all in. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do everything I can to help you live out this faith. It says, you know, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish these things. God is passionate about this. Friends, what this means is Jesus' work on the cross for your sins and my sins, that's not the only work God does. It's not as though Jesus dies for your sins and then goes to heaven, sits back and chills and is like, folds his arms and says, okay, look, I've done everything I can now. The rest is up to you. No. He goes to heaven. He dies for our sins. And now he's like, what else can I do? How else can I work on you? How can I change your affections? How does he, he work on us? In the Old Testament, the, the phrase fear and trembling is often a reference to how people respond when they're in the very presence of God, when they come face to face with God. It's like in Psalm 2, the rebellious kings are called before God to fear and rejoice with trembling. There's gravity here. They're urged to kiss the sun, to take refuge in the sun. They're confronted with God. It's, it's, It's like terrifying, and yet there's mercy there. Kiss the sun. Take refuge in him. Rejoice with trembling. Friends, now Paul is saying, work out your salvation in the very presence of God because God is at work in you. The presence of God is working inside of you. The God of the universe is not just outside saying Jesus died on the cross, but he's like coming inside of you. And Paul has shown, look in chapter two, how the Holy Spirit is at work inside of our hearts. Paul alludes to this in verse one. If you have any participation in the Spirit, the Spirit is inside of you. You do. You're in Jesus. God has put his Spirit inside of you. And the good work that he's begun in you, chapter one, verse six, he's gonna bring this through to, complete, through to completion. Friends, in Christian doctrine, all three members of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. The Father, the Bible tells us, plans our salvation. He's got all the plans worked out. The Son accomplishes our salvation. He takes on flesh, humbles himself, takes on the form of a servant, goes to work on earth, goes to the cross, carries our sins, sees them all forgiven, rises again three days later. So the Father plans, the Son accomplishes The Holy Spirit applies. The Holy Spirit takes the work of Jesus now and the plans of the Father and comes into our hearts and makes our hearts alive to God to begin to delight in Him and work for Him and serve Him. This is His power at work inside of us. I don't know whether to use this analogy because it's not that great, but in some ways, God is like the perfect version, like the best version of a helicopter parent, right? Okay, so think about like a kid who's got a school project to do and then the mom's like, the kid's like totally disinterested, like not interested at all. The mom's like, but this is important, right? The mom's like, I've got an idea. We can do this and this and this. This is a fictional story. Never happened in my house before, okay? <laughs> Let's plan this. You could do this. I've got all these ideas. Plans out the whole thing, right? The kid's like, okay, I've got, got to do the project. Then the mom goes down to the shops, like buys, pays for everything, buys all the craft stuff and all the things to make it happen, makes all the, you know, purchases it. And then says to the kid, now you've got to do this. The kid's still like dragging their feet. So now the mom's like, let me help you. Let's do this together. And they're kind of partnering. And at the end, it looks beautiful. And everyone knows, did the kid do it? I mean, maybe stuck one or two things together here or there. But the work really is all the parent. Friends, God here plans, accomplishes, 
purchases, applies us from start to finish. He turns our hearts toward him. And friends, this is how formerly crooked and twisted generations can now become children shining like lights. Because God is working inside of us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure this out. You're thinking, there are a lot of things about Christianity that make sense that I like, but I don't know if I can live up to this. I want you to know today, the good news of Christianity is that you don't have to live up to something perfectly yourself. Jesus has done that for you. And then Jesus, if you put your faith in him, will put his spirit inside of you. He'll change your heart. He'll give you a new love for God. And you, you will begin to live out the faith. It will be imperfect. You'll stumble. We all do. But you'll find his spirit inside of you in greater and greater ways. So God's presence here, friends, applying the gospel to your heart is how we're assured again and again we're not alone, we're not abandoned, we're not forgotten. The spirit helps us in our weaknesses. So some of you could ask, in the Christian life, is it we who work or is it God who works? It's like, yes, no, yes, no. No, it's not we who work. Jesus dies for us. But yes, we do work because we kind of work that out. But no, not really, because the Spirit is at work inside of us, even willing, giving us, putting a desire inside of us to will and to act. So, how do we end and respond today? Three ways I want to encourage us. Firstly, friends, can we pray with the Son who prays for you? I don't have a t- time in our 40 minutes this morning to double click on all the ways God's at work in us, but one of them is the Son. Even now, Jesus in heaven is praying for you. That's part of the work of God. You can pray for your sanctification and say, God, in this area of my life, I'm just grumbling and struggling. I don't enjoy obeying you. But you can pray to Jesus now because Jesus is praying for you to have joy in God right now. And that helped my prayer life when I realized I'm, I can join in on Jesus' prayers for me. Wow. Secondly, friends, we can work out our salvation with the Father who's at work in us. Come to the Father. Lord, I'm struggling with this. Let me go back to the good news. And finally, we cannot grieve the Spirit who has been given to us, who does dwell inside of us, through whom we do share in Christ. The Spirit has been given to us. When the Spirit convicts you, when the Spirit is guiding you, friends, let's respond to the Spirit and not grieve Him. So, RHC, let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in us. Let's obey him gladly with joy. If we do so, we'll begin to shine like lights in this world. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that your spirit would stir up our affections in a deeper way. Give us a love for you. Open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of our faith, and help us to follow you with joy. We ask this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.